Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Will Slaughter, Associate Professor at University of Paris Diderot. We will discuss his new book, Who Owns the News? A History of Copyright, which is published by Stanford University Press. So welcome to the program, Will. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Ah, it's the pleasure is all mine. I really loved reading your book, which I think is an incredible uh, contribution to the history of an important institution, which, um, frankly, I feel like has been all too ignored by copyright scholars over the years. And I think the book brings an incredible perspective to the history of journalism and, and how we think about it. Um, but I wanted to start by asking if you could provide a little context for kind of like technical context for the question that you ask, um, who owns the news, right? So with respect to copyright in particular, how do we answer that question today? And have we always answered it the same way? Well, um, one of the things that I... Um have to say at the beginning of the book is that there would be many ways to answer this question. Um, you know, since we're now in a world of social media and uh, a world in which there are lots of concerns about fake news and manipulation and so on, um, the question of ownership or control is an open one. And so I really am focusing on not so much who owns the assets of major news organizations, in other words, like who sort of decides what gets published. And I'm also not looking uh, really at political manipulation um, or fake news. I'm looking at this question of whether or not you can make news exclusive and whether or not you can control what other people do with it. And so it is it is one aspect of a larger question about the, the, the factors that determine what kinds of news is produced and how it circulates. And so copyright is one mechanism of control among, among many. Um, but it occurred to me uh, that, you know, we didn't have a history of copyright or other kinds of property rights in news, and that this was uh, suddenly in the last few years, a topic that was of interest to publishers and news agencies that felt they were losing some of the control that they had in the past. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me about, you know, as a copyright scholar, about the framing that you provide is, is that in a lot of ways today, the sort of conventional wisdom is that news qua news just really isn't the subject of copyright ownership at all. And yet you tell this fascinating story of the history of copyright through the lens of the news. Um, why? Why did you? Why did you do that? What? What prompted you to do that? Well, I began the project in uh, two thousand nine, so ten years ago. Um, sometimes academic projects uh, take quite a, a long time to come to completion, and at that moment, uh, there was a lot of talk about the crisis in journalism that had been brought on. Um, by the internet and the advent of new forms of uh, journalism online, but especially by the loss of advertising revenue that accompanies the shift, that is still accompanying the shift from print to digital. And uh, that was a moment in 2009 when I began to notice that um, news organizations, very prominent ones, 
were beginning to talk about um, protecting what they called their intellectual property. And, uh, you know, it, it made sense to me that, you know, perhaps news articles like any other kind of um, <clears throat> like any other kind of writing um, could be protected by copyright. Um, but then there's something different about news. And I began to wonder, well, what would it mean to have copyright protection for news? In what ways is news different than literary authorship? Uh, in what ways is news different um you know, than the other kinds of cultural goods protected by copyright. My background was in the history of publishing and the history of, of the book, not as a legal scholar, but as a historian of publishing. And I was familiar with a lot of good literature by literary scholars and historians of printing and, uh, and legal scholars who, who take a historical approach to copyright. And so I was familiar with some of this scholarship on the development of copyright for printed books, and uh, then for photography and film and so on. But it, it just occurred to me that there really wasn't anything about news publications and the special relationship that news publications have to democratic culture, the uh, fact that these are not only fact-based works and information-rich works, but these are works that are that are often bound up with political and cultural attitudes towards um, the way information should circulate, and the fact that, you know, um, in my view as a historian, uh, a lot of the news publications I had looked at, there was a lot of copying, that that in a way, um, much of what enabled the news to spread in many periods of history was copying and in, and the interdependence of news publications. So I started to look at this and think about, well, you know, how did this question of copyright work its way out, work itself out in the realm of news? So your your the story that you tell begins like a really long time ago, right? I mean, like seventeenth century, maybe even a little bit earlier, before there was any kind of legal concept of copyright in the modern sense at all. But there was at least something that looks a little bit like like journalism. And and I was wondering if you could talk about sort of what the news looked like at that period of time and how people kind of conceptualized and managed its uh, production and distribution. Yeah. So one of the interesting developments in the history of news in the last 20 years or so is looking beyond the sort of older institutional history of journalism towards a broader cultural history of news in many different forms. And so when I begin this book in the, in the 16th century, there is no newspaper yet, um, but there are many other forms of news that are printed and sold for a profit. So the business of news is older than the newspaper as we know it. There were uh, news in the forms of uh, pamphlets, that is to say small unbound books that might tell a single story of a single event uh, and would be printed uh, immediately after the event occurred and would be sold on the streets. And, and sometimes these were legal in the sense that they had been approved by censors and other times they were, they were completely um, clandestine and illegal. Another form of news was the um, ballad, which is um, a sung form of news that was very popular in the 16th and 17th century. And actually, the tradition of ballads, of course, in many ways continues up to today, although 
the form of the news ballad has is is no longer very familiar. Um, <laughs> but these were uh, simultaneously, um, you know, performances in the sense that this was the singing of news, but they were also um, printed products. Uh, the the printed form of the ballad, the words, and often some imagery accompanying it, uh, were sold. Uh, on the streets um, for a profit, and they were they were bestsellers of their time. So those are the two most important forms before the newspaper came about. And the newspaper is distinct from those in the sense that it's an ongoing publication that mm. appears at regular intervals, and usually, uh, at least you know now we think of it as something with a stable title that could be recognized by readers and often something that you subscribe to, you know, and that you commit to purchasing. Um, and, you know, there's a period of uh, basically 150 years between the invention of printing and the the real invention of the newspaper. Um, and that's because, uh, you know, printing itself can't um, explain the rise of the newspaper. You need the development of um, other things, uh, namely the post office, which enables the circulation of news. It enables you to um, procure enough news to actually publish news on a regular schedule and then to send that news out to customers. Because if you think about it, news shouldn't normally happen on a regular schedule, which is why something like a ballad or a pamphlet makes sense. Uh, you just print it after the event has occurred when you need to um, recount that event and comment on it. Whereas a newspaper requires you to have a regular and um, sufficient source of of stories to tell, and um, so the, you know that that problem is is helped by the development of more regular and rapid um, transmission of information. First with the post office, and then of course in later periods with the telegraph, and then um, networked computers. Yeah, and from your description of the period, it it sounded like the regulation of the press during that period had the incidental effect of discouraging or even preventing the development of the newspaper until there was a shift in the way that kind of the regulation was conceptualized. Is, is, is that right? Well, it's, it's partly right. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do in this, in this book is get away from technological determinism and also get away from, assuming that the law, whether we're talking about the law of censorship or later on the law of copyright, actually determines publishing practice. So a lot of the book is about, you know, sort of um, trying to understand the relationship between the law, whether it's censorship or copyright, and the way publishers are actually operating and what's actually becoming available. So it is true that in the early period, um, and I, we're talking about England here, but in this would be the case for much of Europe, in the 17th century, um, there was no recognized right um, of the public to access and talk about political developments. So uh, the news that was published, um, some of it was illegally published, as I said, but the, the news that was published legally um, would have been approved by the authorities and therefore uh, is not the kind of critical journalism that we would expect today. So certainly up until 1695, um, <clears throat> 1695 is the date in England where pre-publication censorship ends. And um, up until that point, um, you know, you do have uh, printers and uh, publishers who are worried about 
um, the effects of censorship, and that clearly would have some chilling effect on what was published. So as you started to see kind of a newspaper in the modern sense emerge, how did the publishers of those newspapers think about ownership of the actual kind of text or you know the kind of content of the text that that they published and, and you know in your book you cover both the UK and the US and I think it might be helpful to sort of for listeners to sort of highlight for them some of the differences uh, between how the sort of publishing industry in the UK and the US developed and why yeah so um, the rise of the newspaper the story that I tell about it is a story that is it. it happens, the crucial development happens in the 18th century. And the 18th century is a period after the lapse of censorship. And so it becomes possible to um, put out a newspaper without permission. And it becomes possible to do this uh, in other towns besides London. Um, And so you start to see the development of newspapers in various uh, places. And early on, there's no sense that... um, News is something produced by a professional journalist. Uh, News is a rather casual affair in the 18th and going into the early 19th century. And um, so there's some information that's collected in ship ports, for example, when captains come in from sea and they've got news of what happened that they've learned from other places. There's uh, so there's some interviewing of people who kind of know what's going on. Um, and then the other main source is, um, well, two other main sources are submissions by readers, which um, can be, you know, a military officer or a merchant or someone else who has some source of information, um, whether it's about trade or about political developments in other places. And then the other source is, is other publications. So newspapers in other cities, uh, even newspapers in the same city. And what you see develop in the 18th and early 19th centuries on both sides of the Atlantic is what you might call a culture of copying. It's it's a culture in which um, newspapers are um, miscellanies, uh, so they're made up of of many different texts by many different authors. They're collective works. Um, they're um, they're um, their basic compositional unit. I've argued is the paragraph rather than the article or story. So you get a lot of paragraphs of news that are that are either copied from other newspapers or submitted by readers or um, collected locally, as I said, and that these make the round in other in other publications. Um, and that the main way of sourcing, um, especially news from other places, is newspapers from other places. Um, so you asked about uh, some of the crucial differences between the UK and, and the US. And one very important development in the United early United States is a um, postal policy that encourages the development of newspapers. And it does this in two ways. First, it charges newspapers a very low rate of postage compared to um, business correspondence. So this encourages um, the spread of newspapers, makes them more affordable to be sent through the mail and to subscribe to them. And the other part of that law is that it allows every printer of a newspaper to exchange a copy of his newspaper with every other printer free of charge. So it is actually a policy that encourages the circulation of news or the sourcing of news through exchange. And so printers develop exchange uh, exchange partnerships 
and they exchange newspapers with each other free of charge through the mail. They have to pay the cost of printing an extra copy, but they don't have to pay the main cost at that time, which was the transmission. Um, and so this is really a, a recognition of the fact that you know news was a kind of shared resource that editors in various places um, would reprint. And of course, they didn't always reprint verbatim. They would introduce the stories and contextualize them for their readers or comment on them. Uh, but they used these, these underlying uh, stories, these underlying details of the news as the basis for their newspaper. And this is a system that, you know, basically worked very well for a long time and then uh, was um, called into question in the middle of the 19th century for, for a number of reasons, which we can get to. But I think that that law of 1792 in the U.S. is a good example of how a policy decision, um, you know, really does affect the growth of newspapers. And you could even go so far as to argue that the first Congress of the United States invented press subsidies. Um, and mm -hmm. we've, we've sort of forgotten about that and we need to maybe remember that. And, you know, and that's one thing that really struck me about the story that you tell in your book that, you know, the story of news is intimately tied to the story of sort of social technologies of communication. And it seems like the way that they interrelate with each other, both like, affects what the news kind of what kind of news there is and what news looks like and also the social norms surrounding its generation and the kind of economy of the news as well yeah absolutely i mean that you're really picking up on what i wanted to do with this book which was to provide obviously a, a clear explanation of the different policy choices um whether they have to do in that case with postal policy or later on with copyright. So a clear explanation of the policy choices, along with um, some of the cultural practices or editorial norms that shaped um, the way news spread. And so, you know, um, for a lot of the 19th century, um, this sort of emerging sense of ownership is not so much a property right that people are thinking of, but um, they're starting to think about things like attribution and credit mm. and what we now call plagiarism, but which at the time, most newspaper editors didn't refer to plagiarism. They referred to a failure to give credit. And so that what they were saying was, well, if you're going to copy news that we've collected, or if you're going to copy editorial matter that originates with us, um, then you need to uh, credit the title of our newspaper so that we can you know, receive some kind of boost in reputation that will, you know, help us uh, attract further readers and advertisers. So you do see it's 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 there uh, a sort of emerging sense of of uh, authorship or ownership, but not one that is couched in property terms so much as one that is couched in you know let's uh, let's uh, work together towards shared norms that will enable news to circulate while also um, promoting. Uh, the business, you know, that we are, that we're out um, doing. Yeah. And I was really taken with that kind of spontaneous, almost, it seemed like emergence of guild norms of attribution in early, uh, in early America, you know, and, and I wonder, like, from your research, how effective do you think those norms were? I mean, people, it seems like 
editors of newspapers were doing their best to sort of enforce them through social shaming and also self-help yep. <laughs> as it were to some degree but like in in your research did you find that enforcement was like the rule or the exception to the rule well it's the exception um and there's a sort of there were kind of a, there was a whole range of techniques that editors used to try to um enforce these norms and it began with, you know, you know, sort of basic calls for credit and discussion about, you know, this is the right thing to do or the decent thing to do. Um, it moved on to threats of retaliation, such as um, threatening to cut off an exchange partner who did not reciprocate by um, providing news in return and especially by providing credit for news that they copied. So you you see examples of newspapers saying uh well, wait, why didn't you send me, you know, your, your last issue of your newspaper and the other newspaper responding, because you copied news from us without, you know, giving us credit. And we're just not going to let you do that anymore. Um, and then, you know, the, the much more extreme step that some, uh, I would say, desperate newspaper publishers took was to actually uh, set traps um, by publishing false news that they hoped that certain rivals would copy and then they would, you know, try to publicly embarrass these rivals for having copied fake news. And, uh, you know, this was this was a technique that backfired because, um, you know, uh, people would point out that it was a worse offense to uh, fraudulently, you know, disseminate uh, false news than it was to just copy something without giving credit. And so this was a technique that, you know, you, it was surprising to see that, that, that editors would go back to this technique uh, in different generations. And it seemed to me, you know, a kind of a desperate example, mm. but it's on, clearly on a spectrum, you know, of different ways of trying to um, impose shared norms. At the end of the day, I would say that this, this was not successful. Um, it could have been, it was in, in a way it was, it was an idea of tr finding a way to guarantee the provisioning and circulation of news in a way that would be, that would remain some kind of, um, that would treat news as a shared resource, but still enable, um, publishers to make money. And, um, one of the things that I try to show in the book is that there were the turn away from that exchange economy, the turn away from that sort of um, mutual uh, reciprocity model in, in the United States was brought about by the rise of press associations. Um, and that it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a simple matter of a new technology coming in. It was the way that newspapers dealt with that new technology, which was the telegraph, um, by forming press associations. And that created a very different model of exchanging news, one in which um, the members of the press association wanted the news to be exclusive. In other words, only printed by other members. And so it created this sense of a kind of proprietary nature of news. Uh, if each member collected news local, locally and then shared it with the other members, uh, the value of being a member was based on you know, certain newspapers not having access to that news. And so that's the model that the the association that eventually became the Associated Press developed, uh, a cooperative news association, but one in which the exclusivity of the news um, is crucial to, uh, you know, uh, maintaining the value of being a member. Because, you know, why would you pay in um, to the association? Why would you provide your news 
and your weekly fees to the association if other people who don't pay and who don't provide get to copy the same news. So that that cooperative model, actually, that was a way of dealing with the new technology of the telegraph, but was clearly one possible model among others, um, is what kind of forced the issue of exclusivity and forced or sort of led publishers and managers of the press association towards this idea that news should be treated as a form of property. Yeah. And, and, and when you talk about the, the associations, the press associations and so on, I mean, it, it struck me that a consistent theme in the historical stories you tell from period to period to period is this kind of drift or push perhaps toward cartelization in different forms depending on the economics of the moment. Is that like a, a, a fair assessment of sort of what the history of sort of the organization of news publishing has tended to look like? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And in a way, um, the subtitle of the book is A History of Copyright. But actually, um, much of the book, for, for much of the period covered in the book, copyright is not the main mechanism that publishers use. And it is things like um, cooperative associations. Um, it is private arrangements and private deals between publishers and even very collusive ones or cartel-like ones. So, for example, uh, at the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the main news agencies in the world, so Reuters in the UK, um, Havas in France, Wolf in Germany, and the Associated Press in the United States, those four big news agencies had an exclusive arrangement with each other by which they basically carved up the world into territories and they shared news exclusively with each other. So, um, you know, the Associated Press would give its news, Reuters would give its news, and so on. But it meant that anybody outside of those agencies or who was not a customer of those agencies wouldn't have access to this news. And so for them, it, it solved some of the cost problems of, you know, news has always been expensive to collect and expensive to produce. And in that era, it was also very expensive to distribute through the telegraph. The, the distribution costs have obviously gone down massively um, with the internet, but the production costs are still high. So in that period, yeah, I, I think private arrangements and sometimes quite collusive ones um, were key to the profitability of news. And, you know, I have to say, this is something that really struck me as well. You, you, you use this metaphor of like scissors, yeah. <laughs> especially during the mid 19th century. And it, it struck me as really key to understanding the relationship between authorship and creation and journalism in a way that is very different from the way we understand it today, especially insofar as like there were even people who went so far as to say things like, well, you know, like collecting and assembling the news is harder work than generating new text and that the real contribution is in the collection and organization. Um, and I was wondering like why you think that that was the norm in that period, sort of how that norm came to become troubled or started to shift 
and why we have a much more kind of author-oriented norm of journalism today? This is a fascinating question, and I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I could talk about it for hours, so I'm going to try to be uh, brief. But, <laughs> but as you said, the, basically the main image or the, the main yeah, the main way of describing newspaper editorial work in the 19th century was the scissors editor. And this was the case on both sides of the Atlantic. And the scissors editor was an image that was made it possible to make fun of um, editors for being lazy, for only clipping articles instead of writing them. But it was also um, a role that was defended actively um, by those who said, well, as you, you know, as you just said, careful selection. Um, weeding through all the material that's out there and doing what we would now call, you know, content curation, right? Like actually carefully selecting and then preparing uh, this material for your audience. Um, this was really valued. And so the scissors editor was, was you know, both a way to, to, to mock and a way to celebrate this curatorial role that was, that was crucial to the 19th century press. Well, part of the reason was that, you know, a lot of these, especially in the early 19th century, there, there weren't professional reporters as we know them now. And so, you know, part of the, the, the background for answering your question is the professionalization of journalism in the late 19th and through the 20th century, the development of journalism schools, the development of, you know, certain codes and um, practices um, of, of journalism and the professionalization of, of that. So that's part of the story. But I think that there's something else going on, because if you think about it, the internet and the, the particular forms of journalism that developed on the internet, including automated ones like aggregation, um, but also human, human um, curated blogs and human, um, cur human curated um, uh, websites that compile and juxtapose and reframe texts and images that have come from other places. That tradition has come back, right? So we do have, yeah, we have a different view of authorship now, and we have a different view of what a journalist is, but we also have the return of um, you know, the role of compiling and juxtaposing and, um, you know, selecting material that's been and relaying material that's already been published somewhere else. So it's a it's a complex thing. And I think a lot of work, not just my own, but a lot of work on the history of journalism and the history of news now is noticing these parallels. The fact that, you know, actually the unique period in the history of news is the period of the very late 19th century through the late 20th century, the, the period in which the industrial newspaper um, and, you know, the mass, the mass circulation newspaper that is uh, produced by professional reporters and financed largely through advertising so that it can be sold at a low cost, that hundred years or so is, is perhaps only one phase in this longer history of news and how we deal with it. Um, and that in many ways, the 18th and early 19th century practices that I'm looking at have their echo today. Yeah, I mean, it, it really struck me throughout your entire book that the story of journalism, at least through one lens, almost seems like this kind of tension between the concepts of authorship and the concept of information, you know, 
And like, what are we prioritizing when we are producing this kind of material? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, um, maybe you could, we could move forward, um, to a little bit more recent period in the conversation that you have in the book, uh, and look at the INS v. AP and sort of like drill down a little bit more on the role of the telegraph in shaping what the news industry looked like during, during that period. Sure. Sure. So, yeah. So like maybe a little background, like just like, what was happening? You talked a little bit about news associations. What did they look like at that moment in time? And why was there a sort of, what was prompting the sort of newspapers to look at new ways of sort of claiming ownership of their content at that historical moment? Okay. So the, the background of the, of the INS case, the INS case took place during World War I. But for me, the background of that case goes back several decades, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, that is the creation of a particular model of a cooperative press association in which um, exclusivity becomes extremely important. Now, there's the, the key difference between the Associated Press and its competitors uh, was that the Associated Press was owned by the member newspapers that made up the association. So it was a non-for-profit organization, um, but it was one in which membership was not open to everybody. Um, so you couldn't just become a member by paying. You had to actually be admitted into the membership. And a lot of um, newspapers in big cities in particular um, had protest rights that they could use to block new membership applications in their area. And that was because, you know, they wanted to, to maintain the value of the news that they collected through the association. And if there were a lot of new newspapers, competitors coming into their city who had access to the same news from the Associated Press, then, you know, the, the, the competition becomes a problem because they don't have this news exclusively. So the, the background for the case is actually this problem of exclusivity because, the other uh, for-profit news agencies that existed in the late 19th and early 20th century would accept any customer that was willing to pay, and um, you know they wanted and they wanted some of the members of the Associated Press to join, but the Associated Press members were not allowed to um, join any other association um, or to get news from any other uh, rival news agency. That was about protecting uh, the association. And so this is very different from the Associated Press that we know today, basically. This was an Associated Press that was much more exclusive, and the value of membership was, was based on this exclusivity. So what happened in uh, World War I was that um, the, a competing news agency called International News Service, um, which run, run by William Randolph Hearst, um, already had bad press, uh, basically, because Hearst newspapers were seen as, as being you know, against the United States entering into World War I. Um, they were um, accused of publishing some stories that were um, spreading misinformation about the war. And the British government uh, basically uh, cut off INS's access to the Atlantic transatlantic cable. So suddenly in World War I, INS does not have a way of getting news from Europe. Uh, conveniently through the transatlantic cable. And um, they, uh, Associated Press decides, oh, this is how we're going to catch 
catch them stealing news from us. And they actually begin to register some news stories for copyright. And then they begin to clamp down on security in the um, Associated Press offices and in the offices of their member newspapers. And they start to notice that there are some uh, telegraph operators that have accepted bribes from international news service. And there's some um, surreptitious taking of news from uh, AP offices. And so they launch a lawsuit against uh, INS. But that that uh, sort of surreptitious taking of news through bribery um, is easily dealt with by the courts. The main issue at, um, at, at that when the case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court is whether or not there can be a property right in news that is um, independent of the form in which the news is expressed. So something that's not like copyright, but is a property right in the actual factual details of news. And the uh, Associated Press argues, absolutely, we've, we've um, spent a lot of money collecting news and uh, labor and money, and it's just not, uh, it's not fair. It's unfair competition for another uh, news agency to take even the details and rewrite this news. So that's the, that's the, that's the question that the court is, is presented with. And, um, you know, it's not a copyright case if, if the, if, if the, um, typical copyright analysis had been, you know, had been applied, then the, the court would have had to say, no, you can't, you can't protect the factual details of the news. But they developed this other argument that news was a form of property that should be protected by common law because of the value um, that it, it um, has to the agency that has collected it. Mm. It's like a really unfair competition theory of news ownership almost, which I thought was really interesting the way that you point out that, uh, you know, it's only like part of the story that like AP also partially was trying to protect the most advantageous way for itself to roll out the news and not just the fact that it collected it in the first place. That's absolutely crucial. And that is actually when you see uh, references to the hot news doctrine um, and the INS case today, a lot of that context is forgotten. Um, if, for, for example, the INS case could have never happened in the UK for the simple reason that there is only one time zone in the UK, whereas there are four time zones in the United States. And so what happened was uh, INS agents would um, take news from early editions of New York newspapers or from public, public display of the news on outdoor bulletin boards. They would take these details, they would telegraph them to the West Coast, and then the West Coast newspapers that were clients of INS would have the news at the same time that it was being printed by Associated Press members. So, you know, it, the, one of, some of the judges in the case actually said, oh, you can solve this problem by just requiring all the members of the Associated Press to publish the news at the same time, right? But the same time, uh, early morning in New York would have been the middle of the night in San Francisco, and that would have been completely undermined the whole business model, because, you know, it, it, you know, you wouldn't be producing this news for people to read at the breakfast table. You'd be releasing it in the middle of the night and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't work for the for the business model that they had with, you know, selling newspapers and having advertisers um, pay for um, this breaking news. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's something uh, it's not the technology of the telegraph alone. It's the geographic uh, configuration of this nationwide um, news business, and it's the particular cooperative business model 
that the Associated Press was trying to protect because they were claiming, and I think they genuinely believe this, if the value of the news was not protected for the members, then the members would not have any incentive anymore to be part of this association and to share their news with the other members, and therefore the whole cooperative model might break down. And that's, that's, the, that's the argument that they made, and the Supreme Court was pretty sympathetic to that. I mean, they, 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 that, insofar as the public interest was ever mentioned in this case, it was on that point. The risk that um, it's very expensive to produce news and distribute it nationally, and if um, a competitor is able to free ride and simply uh, copy the news that's collected, then then maybe the incentive for this uh, associated press model would break down and the public would suffer. So you know you can argue against that, but that that uh, that was a that was the the real sort of political argument behind the case at the time. Yeah, I mean, it struck me as like this really explicit moment in which an argument that like surfaces consistently throughout the story that you're telling about, you know, quote unquote, ruinous competition or unfair competition as the basis for different forms of private ordering in, in the journalism business. And it, it, in a lot of ways, it feels like, you know, the, the ruinous or unfair part does a lot of work in in that claim you know as as it does still today i think in a lot of ways absolutely and so uh, you know part of the some of the chapters which we we haven't talked about but for example the chapter on 19th century britain one of the main things i was trying to show about that was that that argument um that that news is expensive to produce and it's it's essential to democracy and therefore the government should protect somehow um a kind of property right in news in order to make sure that that quality journalism continues. That argument indeed is made repeatedly, and on most occasions it's rejected. Um, and so the 19th century UK chapter is sort of in a way a history of the failure to produce a property right in news, but that failure is you know, um, a success for the public interest in the sense that lawmakers are recognizing that that you know they don't really have empirical evidence that this this is going to work and that by creating a property right they're going to incentivize better quality journalism and they see that the risks of restricting potentially restricting public access to news are great and therefore it's it's a very politically unpalatable argument for for most of the 19th century and 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 frankly most of the 20th century but there are these moments where it breaks through like the INS case and um, you know, in our own age, there's this argument has clearly come back in the battle between mm. um, news organizations and technology companies that are seen as unfairly profiting from the content that is produced by journalism um, in order to sell ads uh, on search engines and to sell ads on Facebook and so on. Um, this argument has come back that you know, if society cares about journalism, then we need to protect, um, you know, and we need to sort of um, restrict what outsiders, in this case technology companies, not other news agencies, and that's an important difference, but still um, restrict what outsiders could do with this uh, material that's produced. So, I mean, from a doctrinal standpoint, you know, INSVAP is sort of seen as this high watermark of a sort of conception of unfair competition in factual information that 
was sort of reached at one point and then soon afterward sort of didn't have a whole lot of teeth anymore. But as you say, I mean, that, that argument or a version of that argument seems to be like increasingly in the air today. Do you think it's likely to become more successful than it's been over the past hundred years since INSVAP? Or is it, do you think it's more likely to encounter some of the same objections that prevented it from kind of being implemented in the past? Well, if you had asked me, um, a couple of years ago, I would have said that I don't think that there was much chance that this argument would work. But but now uh, what's happening in the European Union really gives me pause. And actually, um, uh, I'm concerned about it because what's happening right now is the European Union is about to um, pass a new copyright directive. And one of the most controversial measures in this new directive is a um, special neighboring right um, for uh, press publishers. Um, and the idea is that um, there are a number of exceptions to copyright law, uh, such as the exception for titles and short phrases, um, such as the exception for quotation in the form of press summaries and so on, and that these exceptions may actually be uh, enabling technology companies to uh, unfairly profit from journalism. So the argument that press publishers in Europe are making is that they need this new neighboring right, which would have, which would in some ways be stronger than copyright because it wouldn't, it would include even, it would include the requirement to obtain a license even to reproduce a very short snippet of news and possibly even a headline. Okay, so this and the and the argument that's being used is that um, quality journalism is at risk. And it's in particular at risk um, because of big American tech companies that are um, reusing material and using it to sell ads. And meanwhile, the advertising, um, the advertising supported model of journalism is, is falling apart. And um, many news organizations are having a very hard time um, while uh, Facebook and Google are profiting tremendously from digital advertising. So this argument is is um, is troubling in the sense that there's no empirical evidence that such a, a new right would actually generate um, significant amounts of revenue for um, news publishers. It's troubling also because it was tried in Germany and in Spain. There were two different laws, they're slightly different, but the basic principle was the same, that um, online platforms needed a license in order to um, reproduce even short snippets. It didn't work in either country. Um, and now it's being tried on the European uh, wide level with the argument that, well, if all of Europe bands together, it'll, it'll work. Um, legal academics are extremely skeptical. Journalism scholars are very skeptical. Um, and yet it seems to have this political backing because of the idea that a quality press is important and um, that what's happening, what the uh, tech firms are doing is unfair. So this, this argument is, is morally and in, in moral and geopolitical terms, extremely powerful. And, uh, you know, I've made efforts to try to talk with members of the European Parliament and to be part of the discussion about this. And nobody wants to hear that 
there's a long history in which copyright doesn't really work very well for news. And there's a long history that leads us to believe that this kind of um, <clears throat> this particular kind of subsidy doesn't really work. And then what you need to do is look at perhaps other kinds of subsidies if you really want to support quality journalism. Okay. Yeah. Now that's, I think that makes it, it's a, such a timely thing. And, and in closing, well, I, I wanted to return to the subtitle of your book, a history of, of copyright, you know, and in a lot of ways, I, I think, you know, the history of copyright is also the history of the concept of, of the author. And what I really enjoyed about your book is the way it focuses on the concept of authorship and ownership in relation to news, which sort of like exists in parallel with, but not in the same space as, you know, other forms of authorship we we think about. And, and I'm wondering how you think that thinking about the history of copyright and the concept of authorship and ownership through the lens of the news illuminates how we think about those concepts more generally. Yeah, well, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was to say that if you look at news publications, and not just newspapers, but the different forms that news publications have taken uh, over time, you you can sort of see a slightly different trajectory for the history of copyright. Um, and I think, you know, I tried to show that in, in on several occasions, disputes over news, which we, we haven't talked about the definition of news, but that was part of the problem in this history is that you know, um, it's quite hard to pin down what news is. But if we define it as um, time-sensitive reports about public affairs, um, that disputes over the right to um, copy or the right to reuse these time-sensitive reports that are that are in the public interest um, often led uh, judges to have to face uh, what was the origins of copyright and what was the purpose of copyright and what should be the acceptable boundaries of copyright. So there, there are a number of cases that I discuss in which I, I try to show that, well, you know, actually having these disputes over news arguably pushed copyright in certain directions at certain moments that, that might not have happened otherwise. And certainly it, it, um, it, uh, it helps me to think about the fact that when you look historically, uh, copyright is really not a one-size-fits-all concept. Um, and you know, despite lots of universalizing rhetoric about copyright at various moments, when you look at the nitty-gritty of how you know the history unfolds, something like a news publication has almost always been treated differently than than other forms of authorship. Um, and part of that is because of political attitudes towards journalism and what it's supposed to do for society. Part of it is because, um, you know, it's news is so time sensitive in the way that, you know, a novel or a film is not as time sensitive. And it helps us to see how, um, you know, news is a, is a different kind of public good, right? You know, all sorts of literary and scientific um, works might be considered public goods and, um, and that copyright is a mechanism that helps to solve this, this problem of, um, you know, goods which which are non-rivalrous and can't be easily excluded. Um, but news is is different than they are in the sense that it's so time sensitive and that it's fact based and that it's it's its value to society comes from 
you know, having it be shared right away. So I think it helps to understand why copyright actually doesn't work equally as well for all sorts of cultural goods. News is news is different. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Will, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure and congratulations on your really fantastic Thank book. you so much, Brian. It was really a great pleasure to talk with you today. makes life easier (laughs) saves me time and headaches too (laughs) he sorts things out analyzes in a shake my enormous problem to him's a piece of cake he's got a great big memory like an elephant (laughs) utilizes knowledge without end that's why i'm a router for me computer everybody needs a friend When my work piles up and I'm seeing red Cause I need five arms and an extra head I find the computer becomes me troubleshooter He keeps miles and miles of facts on file My wish is his command Nothing is astuter than a computer when I need a helping hand. Let me explain. They keep on top of accommodations, record and update reservations, coordinate telephone operations, and help plan energy conservation. They're really a great financial device. Payroll service is kept precise. They project attendance, then give advice on personnel, food, and merchandise. They're constantly focusing all their attention on matters of safety and fire prevention. They've given efficiency new dimension with numerous examples too many to mention. <sighs> And that's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. You see, my friends, the computer does the drudgery. Leaves me free for better things. I push some buttons and in and off a mo. What was a sticky wicket becomes an easy go. He's got a great big memory lock and elephant. How he works is hard to comprehend. Complicated computations take him just a tick. He coordinates and tabulates and does it double quick. And that's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. No need to stand, no need to stand. Thank you! Thank you! I don't know what to think.